Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keys for SLPs. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. There are no relevant non-financial disclosures. Alyssa Yergin receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. There are no relevant non-financial disclosures. And now here's a little bit about our guest today. Alyssa Yergin, CCC, SLP, graduated from Clemson University in 2007 with a Bachelor of Arts in English. She graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina in 2009 with a Master's of Science and Rehabilitation in Communication Sciences and Disorders. Alyssa began working for Greenville Health System in 2009 in adult acute care and later joined Greenville Ear, Nose, and Throat Associates in March 2012. She specializes in evaluation and treatment of adolescent and adult voice, upper airway, and swallowing disorders, as well as rehabilitation of communication and swallowing for patients with head and neck cancer. Alyssa enjoys training future speech-language pathologists and educating the community about vocal health and risk factors for head and neck cancers. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you being here to talk about HPV, oropharyngeal cancer. It's such an important topic and so important to spread this information among the public as well as among speech-language pathologists. So thank you for talking about this topic. On a lighter note, I do have to say, when we talked earlier, I love the fact that you told me that your mother really wanted you to talk about this topic today. Yes. And like you said, this is so important for speech pathologists to understand, but also just the general public. And my mom is so funny. She gets with her friends and they, you know, she will tell them what she's learned from me and they are shocked. 
shocked. And I think that the general public would be shocked if they knew more about HPV. So I'm really thankful for this opportunity. And I'm excited to share this education, not only for speech pathologists, but for the general public. Well, thank you so much for doing that for us. So let's get started. What is HPV? HPV stands for human papillomavirus, and it's actually a very common virus that can cause cancer later in life. It's a group of over 150 viruses, and the most common types are things that we have seen before, like warts on a hand. Uh, That is actually a type of HPV. More than 40 HPV viruses can be spread, though, through skin-to-skin contact and sexual contact. And that would be during vaginal, anal, and oral sex. So as you can imagine, this is kind of a taboo topic, and hence why my mom and her friends are all shocked, but it's something that we don't always talk about. There are both low-risk and high-risk HPV types when it comes to cancer. The most common type of HPV cancer associated with oropharyngeal cancers is type 16. And what I think is really wild is that you can get HPV, you can get the virus through sexual contact with someone, even if they don't have signs or symptoms. So this is something you can get and not even realize that A, the person has it, or B, that you've contracted it. So I think that is is definitely an important thing for people to know. And it's so interesting because HPV is the most commonly sexually transmitted disease. So a lot of us aren't familiar with that or, or aren't aware of that, but it is very, very common. One thing that really stands out when I look at the research and the the prevalence of this is that more than half of sexually active people will contract one or more HPV types in their lifetime. So very, very common. And more than 42 million Americans are currently infected with the types of HPV that actually cause disease. That's a lot of a lot of Americans. And just to clarify, that's that 42 million that cause disease, not necessarily cancer. Not necessarily cancer, but can cause disease. That's a good point. So not to freak everyone out, but, you know, the majority of HPV viruses do go away by themselves in the first two years. So that's about nine out of 10. But then there are some that will last and can cause cancer later in life. Just so we are clear, of course, we're talking about HPV oropharyngeal cancer today, but there are HPV cancers that can happen in the cervix, the vagina, the vulva, the penis, and the anus. So those are other areas of the body that HPV cancer can also occur. Uh, But of course, you know, we as speech pathologists, unfortunately, we get to stay, you know, neck up and we can talk about oropharyngeal. (laughs) Okay, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, yeah. What are the most common locations for HPV oropharyngeal cancer? When we're talking about HPV oropharyngeal cancer, the most common locations are the tongue base and the tonsils. So we don't tend to see HPV if you're looking at, you know, other head and neck cancer patients outside of 
of HPV. We wouldn't tend to see this in the larynx, for example. Uh, We really most commonly see it in the tonsils and the tongue base. Okay. All right. And how common is HPV oral pharyngeal cancer? So we've talked about how common just HPV is in general, but when you're looking at oropharyngeal cancer, based on data that was collected from 2013 to 2017, this is in the U.S., but approximately 45,300 HPV-associated cancer occur in the U.S. each year. And cervical cancer is definitely the most common in women. And then oropharyngeal is the most common in men. If you're looking at just that HPV oropharyngeal cancer, 3,500 cases approximately are diagnosed in women each year, and then about 16,200 in men. So definitely, you know, when I'm looking at my caseload for HPV, we call it HPV-mediated cancer when we're talking about it in the ENT world. And most of my patients with this are men. You know, of course, we do see our share of women, but most would be men. Okay. Just a little clarification. So this was data from 2013 through 2017. And when did the HPV vaccination become available? So that was in 2006. In 2006. Okay. Yes. So really, it hasn't been that long, you know, but yeah, that was 2006. How is this data different from data, say, 15 years ago? Great question. Well, what's so interesting, and this was one thing we had talked about when we first got to speak with each other, and it's something that's just really fascinating to me, is that when I first started in the field of speech pathology about 12 years ago, I was working with head and neck cancer patients then, and they were mostly smokers and drinkers and mostly that line of squamous cell carcinoma and not HPV mediated. That was, it was a term that was starting to, you know, be a buzzword, but it certainly wasn't the majority of patients that we were seeing. Now it is a huge majority. When you look at the research, It's thought that as many as 70% of oropharyngeal head and neck cases are linked to HPV. So it's quite a large number. And, you know, of course, we don't know. We're certainly testing for it. You know, when someone gets a biopsy for, let's say, a tonsil lesion, they are going to test for HPV. That wasn't necessarily happening back, you know, 12 years ago or or longer ago. So we don't really know for sure, but certainly those that are being tested, I would definitely agree that in my caseload, 70% are HPV mediated. So it's quite a large number. Again, that's very different from when I first started. And it really has been a challenge because these patients with the HPV-mediated cancer tend to be very high-functioning. They are folks who often have never smoked or drank. And if they did, it would be very minimal. And they come to us functioning at a high level, high level of education, and very high expectations for how they will 
you know, be able to live post-treatment and function post-treatment. So it is different than years ago when the folks who we were seeing were predominantly, you know, less educated and had led, you know, rough lives, I would say, of, of excessive smoking, excessive drinking, you know, even drug use and so forth. And their expectations for their outcomes were frankly not as as high a lot of times. So that has been a major shift in our caseload here, but also across the world. It's very interesting and it's really related to the risk factor for these folks with HPV cancer. Often that's their only risk factor. They're not partaking in other things that would put them at risk. It's often just the fact that they pick this virus up and the other thing that's that's really crazy is that they could have picked up this virus decades before and never have known. So they could have picked it up in you know college, for example, or in their teenage years or young adulthood, and it didn't cause a problem, a cancer, until later in life. And so, you know, you can imagine that is shocking for patients. What is the typical age of diagnosis? So we often see patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I would say in my case, that is the typical age range. Okay. Yeah. And again, mostly men and and a lot of men that are, you know, will say, well, I, I never smoked or I never drank or, you know, if I did, it was so minimal. It's like everybody did socially, you know, but they picked up this virus and now they're dealing with a tumor in the tonsil or tongue base most often. And how is it diagnosed? So it's diagnosed when you look at HPV cancer for cervical cancer, for example, there are good ways to test for that and diagnose that. So the pap smear is an example of something that's used to test for abnormal cells in the cervix. But unfortunately for oropharyngeal cancer, there's really not a good way to detect it very early. So, you know, when someone has the virus and it's in the virus stage and the early stages of pre-cancer and cancer, there's not a saliva test or, or something like that. Now, we do oral cancer screenings here as part of free screenings each year, and a lot of folks do that around the country. Of course, dentists now often screen for oral cancer. So many times these are picked up early if there's a lesion present and it can be visualized by a dentist, for example, or a dental hygienist or an ENT if they're doing a visual exam, or of course, you know, flexible laryngoscopy. So it can be detected, you know, but the lesion has to be present, or they might have a a lymph node that has, you know, swollen on their neck, and then that would be the factor. But, you know, it's really unfortunate that we can't detect it at the early, early stages, like in cervical cancer. There's just not a way to do that yet. So unless there's a lesion present, it cannot be detected. Yeah, lesion present that can be visualized or some folks will not even, you know, have a lesion that's been visualized, but they have a lymph node that swells up on their neck. Then when you go and you have further imaging, then a lesion is seen, you know, deep in the tongue base or in the tonsil and so forth. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. And some patients won't even have any symptoms yet. I mean, they may come in and they've got this bulge on their neck that they feel, or maybe they cut when they're shaving, but they may not even have symptoms of, you know, pain in their throat or pain with swallowing or anything. So you can imagine, you know, when they receive the diagnosis, it's really shocking. Oh, yes, absolutely. They must be in shock. And well, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but you work as part of a team. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so after that initial diagnosis, they come to see you pretty shortly after that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, here's some good news. Is HPV preventable? Yes, that is the good news. So after all this, uh, you know, sad discussion and, and tough discussion, it is preventable. And the good news is we have a vaccine and it's very effective. And the vaccine can help prevent cancer causing and precancerous HPV infections. The key though is to get the vaccine before sexual contact starts. So we want this vaccine given in children, both girls and boys. And that's different than when I was younger and and this was first coming around. It was really geared towards girls. That was really, yeah, the population that was, it was recommended for. But we know, of course, now that boys and girls should get this vaccine. And the best age would be 11 to 12. They should get two doses of the vaccine given six to 12 months apart. If there's a risk for sexual contact at that age or before, the vaccine can be given as young as nine years old. You know, that is a possibility. And then children, let's say, you know, they don't get the vaccine at 11 or 12 and they miss that window, but they get uh, to their 15th birthday, they would actually need three doses of the vaccine given over six months. So that would be, if you got it a little bit later, you would potentially need three doses instead of two. And I do think that is a, a drawback of this vaccine. Frankly, a lot of kids will get the first one, and then they don't return for the second, or if they need a third for the third. So that is definitely a challenge. Now, along those lines, if they uh, return, but after 12 months, can they still get an effective second dose? They can still get a dose. You know, I don't know exactly what the efficacy would be. I'm sure it's still effective, but the most effective would be given between that six to 12 month window. Really, even if you miss the window in your teen years and you're a young adult, you can still get vaccinated. And many physicians will encourage folks, even through the age of 26, to get the vaccine. And we know that it's not going to be as effective if you've already been exposed to the HPV virus, but it still can have benefits. And so that's something to talk to one's doctor about you know, is this, I've I've passed that age where it's the prime age to get it. I've already had sexual contact. Is it still appropriate for me to get it? Would it be beneficial? Even some adults in the 27 to 45 range could be appropriate for the vaccine. And an interesting story recently in clinic, we had a husband and wife, which 
we often have husbands and wives who come in and the husband will be diagnosed with oropharyngeal HPV mediated cancer. And the wife says, well, oh my gosh, I have been exposed to this. I don't, I haven't been vaccinated and should I get vaccinated? And so that is a discussion that our doctors have with the spouse, uh, believe it or not. And in many cases, it is appropriate for the spouse to get vaccinated and it can provide some benefit. Really? Yeah. Have you ever had a couple where they both had HPV mediated cancer? Yes, we have. And it's, it's shocking and, and sad. I can think of a specific couple who actually both went through treatment for oropharyngeal HPV-mediated cancer at the same time. I don't know how often that happens in you know the general public, but we were we were pretty surprised uh, that they they both were diagnosed and both went through they went through chemo radiation at the same time together. Believe it or not, and so we would know that you know they both. Had that they had the virus and shared it with each other. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. How difficult. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is very interesting to know that even at an older age, the vaccination and even with exposure, it could still be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's very promising. And of course, it's best to get it before sexual contact at an early age, but it's great that it can provide some e- efficacy later on. So it's. Good news. (laughs) Good news. Yes. Okay. And speaking of efficacy, can you tell us how effective the vaccine is? Yes, the vaccine is very effective. There are three HPV vaccines total, but Gardasil 9 is the only HPV vaccine currently distributed in the U.S. It's thought to be 93% effective in preventing oropharyngeal HPV-mediated head and neck cancers and nearly 100% effective in preventing cervical, vulvar, and vaginal infections and precancers. Well, good. Now, how about the side effects from the vaccine? Well, with any vaccine, of course, there are going to be side effects. But fortunately for this vaccine, the side effects are really mild, and they're usually very short-lived. They can include things like pain and redness, swelling at the injection site, But again, that doesn't last long. Interestingly, for any vaccine that's given to adolescents, there is a risk for dizziness and fainting. But that is not just for this vaccine. That's really for all vaccines that adolescents get. Maybe, you know, they're more anxious about it or or whatever. But then nausea, you know, and headache are, are two others. But again, those seem to be mild for the majority and transient. And so when looking at that, I mean, the, the side effects definitely are outweighed by the benefits. Are there any contraindications for the vaccine? Well, yes, there are. There are not many, but if you have an anaphylactic allergy to latex, that would be a contraindication. If you have a hypersensitivity to yeast, interestingly, that is a contraindication because two of the HPV vaccines are made with baker's yeast. And then if you have a moderate or severe acute illness, let's say you're in the throes of some acute illness, 
you would want to wait until that illness subsides before getting the vaccine. So that is something to keep in mind. You know, say you're just sick with something, I mean, even a really bad upper respiratory infection or something like that, you just want to wait. And most people probably would, but wait until all of that's better, you know, before getting the vaccine. And then I know that in, um, you know, especially among lay people, there are rumors of the HPV vaccine and link for risk for autoimmune disease. But there's really good research to show that there's there's no correlation. So there's no increased risk for an autoimmune disease related to the HPV vaccine. So I think that that's really important for people to understand, especially when parents are weighing, you know, and, and considering this and asking, is this right for my child? That's a really important thing to know. Well, thank you. Okay. And now the good stuff. What is the SLP's role in helping patients who have been diagnosed with HPV oropharyngeal cancer? Yeah. So just like the vaccine is really promising, the SLP's role is promising as well. And it's really, really impactful for these patients. We can evaluate and treat these patients who are diagnosed with HPV or pharyngeal cancer, and we should really get involved early. And these cancers are actually highly curable. So that's another plus, you know, when a patient's diagnosed and it's HPV mediated, that's actually a positive thing. These cancers respond really well to cancer treatment and actually respond better than non-HPV-mediated oropharyngeal cancers. So that is really important for us as speech pathologists to understand, but also just the general public that, you know, if it's HPV-mediated oropharyngeal cancer, then those respond better to the cancer treatments. So that's good. And, and SLPs, like with any other cancer, we want to get involved early and really at the time of diagnosis if we can. Okay. Okay. Do you know if there's a, an explanation for why HPV-mediated oropharyngeal cancer is more treatable? That is a really good question. HPV cancers in the oropharynx are thought to respond better to cancer treatment because of a natural immune response that is already occurring because of the presence of the HPV virus. I know for our patients that, you know, that is a positive prognostic indicator. It's something that our, our ENT surgeons and uh, reconstructive surgeons talk about. And so when they send off for the biopsy, that's, of course, something that's looked at. And then, you know, when we get that result, then they're informed, well, you know, I'm unfortunate, it's unfortunate that you have this cancer, but it actually, you know, this type responds better. So that does play into the types of treatments that are chosen, of course, and then, of course, how patients' outcomes are. Okay, so the SLP should get involved early. And what does that look like? So we have a patient who comes to your clinic and gets the diagnosis. And, and what happens from there as far as the yeah. SLP's role? So here, it's really ideal. At our clinic, we have built a program where we are in clinic with our head and neck cancer surgeon. So patients are actually coming to the surgeon. They are getting their biopsy. They're having those 
tough discussions and we may not see them for, you know, an evaluation at that point unless they're having trouble, of course, with swallowing or with their voice or articulation. But even if we just pop in and introduce ourselves at that point and say, you know, my name is Alyssa Jurgen, I'm a speech pathologist. I work with this head and neck surgeon who you're going to see. I will be here for you, you know, as you get your results back and as your treatment plan is figured out, I'm here for you. So even if we just introduce ourselves, that is is great. But some patients, when they come for that first visit and they're getting the biopsy, they do have trouble, whether it be painful swallowing, aspiration or signs of pharyngeal residue and different things like that. And so, you know, when they come in for that initial visit, there are often reasons for us to see them at that point. And then sometimes it's just a hello and we're introducing ourselves. But then they will come back after they've had the biopsy and the pathology is out there. Then the head neck surgeon will have them come back and we will see them and you know, talk about any problems that they're having. We will be present for the discussion of, you know, your treatment options are A, B, and C. And so it's these patients, they've already met us, we're familiar faces and, you know, already part of, they're already part of our family. We like to say that. So, you know, we're already getting to know them. And this is even before they've started their treatment. They don't, they might not even know what their treatment is going to be, but we already are involved. Now that's best case scenario. Uh, I know that a lot of places it's it's not like that. And we have worked really hard to, to get to where we are. Before I worked in this setting and I was receiving referrals, you know, even after the treatment was already over and so forth. What I did and what I would encourage my colleagues to do out there is to speak up and advocate for our profession and advocate for how important early SLP intervention is and involvement is and find out if there is a tumor board or some kind of meeting of the minds that you can be involved in. We have a tumor board here. So what we do is, you know, once the patient has the biopsy, they get their imaging that could look like a PET scan, a CT scan, whatever imaging is needed. Then we have a meeting of the minds. We have our tumor board and it involves a ton of different professions, but it can be, you know, of course, speech pathologist, radiation oncologist, radiologist, oncologist, ENT, head and neck cancer surgeon, the reconstructive surgeon, you name it. I mean, just, you know, dietitian, physical therapist. We even have a head and neck nurse navigator and a head and neck PA. And so we all meet and, you know, some are virtual. Some are- wow, that's impressive. So that's a, that's a lot of schedules to coordinate. Yes. And so it's, of course, it's 7.30 a.m. every Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Joy>. okay. <laughs> but, you know, and those who can be there in person are in person and those who have to be virtual are virtual. But we meet together and we present all of the head and neck cases and including those with HPV mediated cancer. And we talk about what the pathology showed, what the imaging shows. We actually pull that up and the radiologist is there to go through the imaging. And then we talk about what the best treatment options are. And what's really cool is the SLP involvement 
there is is really big. They look to us to say, well, how's this patient doing at baseline with their swallowing? Have you done the baseline MBS or fees? And what did that look like? What is the patient's, you know, family situation? Can they make it to treatment? If we were going to say they need chemo radiation, you know, that's five days a week, 35 treatments. Do they have a car? Are they going to be able to come? And often we know that type of information because we are caring and, and loving people and we love to get to know our patients and talk to them. And we look at at more than just often, you know, the, the surface level stuff. And so we know, well, so-and-so has, you know, no family support. They don't have a car. They, you know, aren't going to be able to make it to chemo radiation. And frankly, they don't want chemo radiation. They actually told us they want surgery if at all possible. And if that would be an effective method of treatment. So the SLPs are really, really important in these discussions. And the initial diagnosis is not the only time that patients are brought to tumor board. They are brought back time and time again at various intervals throughout their course. But we're involved every step of the way. It's really, really cool. Now at tumor board, uh, all the professionals are there. You're discussing the patient, but the patient is not actually there. Right. The patient is not actually there. They are aware that we have tumor board and that we discuss their case. So they are informed of that. And then each professional who's present at tumor board will take away the information that they need to then give to the patient. So the radiation oncologist, it might be determined that the best treatment course is chemo radiation. So the radiation oncologist will say, well, I'm seeing that patient this week. So I will discuss what chemo radiation will look like. And then I might say, well, I have an appointment with that patient also later in the week. So I'll be sure to educate them on the effects of chemo radiation on their speech and swallowing. And so it, it's very dynamic, and but it also requires preparation. And then it requires us to know our stuff and really be able and willing and ready to jump in and talk and speak up for our patients and frankly, for our profession. You know, but going back to can SLPs get involved in early, if you're not involved early, then you need to be and you need to advocate for that. And it can be, you know, a discussion about developing a tumor board if there's not one already, having a seat at tumor board if, if you're not there or haven't been invited, and then talking and, and even giving the literature about how prophylactic exercises for these patients is really beneficial for their outcomes. That's one thing that we did years and years ago was presented, you know, what evidence there is, and now there's even more. But that helped because the radiation oncologist, they don't necessarily want to deal with all of that later on. They, you know, they want somebody who, if the treatment outcomes are going to be better, their swallowing outcomes are going to be better because they're involved with you, you know, as a speech pathologist they're going to be all for it, but they may not know that and you might have to educate them. Be an advocate for yourself and your profession because we can do so much with these patients. Alyssa, can you give us some examples of the prophylactic exercises? Absolutely. So it depends on, of course, the location of the lesion or the tumor and 
you know, what the patient's issues are at baseline when you first see them. And then, of course, what the treatment recommendation is. But for example, if a patient's going to have surgery and they have, you know, we talked about a tongue base or tonsil is the most common location for these. If they're going to have surgery, that surgery will very likely be a TORS surgery. So that is called transoral robotic surgery. With TORS, we would see the patient ideally before they have that surgery, and we would give them education about, we go into a lot, but the pain that they're going to have after the surgery and how it increases day two or three through the first two weeks that it's the worst sore throat of their life, um, that they need to stay ahead of the pain. And of course, they're going to be, that's our multidisciplinary approach. They're going to have palliative care. And palliative care, a lot of folks, you know, their eyes get big when they hear palliative care, but palliative care can help with pain management very well. So these patients are going to see them and they're going to be managed as far as pain goes. And that's going to help them to be able to keep swallowing and keep speaking, which we need them to do these things to not lose function. We talk about how with the research and what we see clinically that most swallows after a TORS return to normal. And that's by six weeks though. So for the first six weeks, they are struggling and they need us and they need liquids and oral supplements. Often for the first two weeks, they're just drinking liquids. And so we need to really help them prepare for that, even if it's helping them get a grocery list together, frankly. The registered dietitian is also on tumor board, so that individual would know they need to be talking to this person, this patient, about oral supplements and how many calories they need and all this kind of stuff. And then it's also interesting with tours. So by six weeks, most swallows return to normal, but those six weeks are really rough. And studies show that there's really no significant changes in swallow safety, meaning aspiration, penetration, pre and post tours. So if the patient's not aspirating or penetrating pre tours, then there's some good studies to show that they probably won't afterwards. But what does change is their swallow efficiency. So we know that there are many studies that support that there are changes in swallow efficiency, meaning when they swallow, they'll have residue. So one swallow or just swallowing without a liquid wash is not sufficient. So we let them know this and we've done a pre, pre-surgery objective assessment either a modified or a fees, because we need to know what their baseline is. And interestingly, with this population, they often under-report their dysphagia. So That is interesting. Yeah. And it's really because of a couple things. One, imagine you're diagnosed with cancer and it's overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about survival and other logistics and things and not necessarily about how your hamburger went down, two, you have often decreased or changes in your sensation when you swallow. And then there can be the burden of the tumor itself. You know, you could feel this tumor itself in your oropharynx and not know that food is also sticking 
in your throat. So these patients often, and it's it is never fails, they're often under-reporting or not even reporting their dysphagia. That's super important for SLPs to know because when we interview them and we, we say, how's your swallowing? We do a clinical swallow. They may say everything's just fine. But when we look objectively with an MBS or fees, we see, oh no, everything is not fine. And it may just be they can't feel it or they're just overwhelmed. Okay. Is it a relatively slow growing cancer? So it depends. It can be more aggressive and it can be a slower. It's it varies from person to person. And I, I'm not sure exactly what the factors at play are. I'm sure, you know, things like metabolism and, and other things play a role. And of course, this type of cancer and really head neck cancers in general, they tend to spread through the lymphatic system. And that can be, once it's to the lymph nodes, that can be very fast. So it is, you know, something that needs to be we have to be very quick in this timeline of all this education and all these appointments and so forth that we're orchestrating. We have to act quickly. There's definitely an important window where we need to get them either operated on or treated with chemo radiation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if it was slow growing, if that might be one of the reasons for underreporting because they just got used to swallowing that way. And certainly a lot of patients, it, that would be the case. Yeah. And for others, they come in and they've got a watermelon size, you know, lymph node on their neck and they're saying, oh yeah, everything's fine. You know, <laughs> this, uh, you know, I'm swallowing fine, but we take a look and it's not the case. And so, you know, that would be a lot of the education that we give. So we give a lot of just general education and planning for after surgery. We also go through things like xerostomia, dry mouth, dyskesia or change in taste, dysphagia, of course, difficulty swallowing, and then the mouth and throat pain that they will have. And so we, we talk about each of those and talk about things that they can do to help once they have these side effects. And then when we get into the actual exercises, for tours, most often we look at tongue-based exercises. So things like the Masako, the Effortful Swallow, tongue-based retraction, and open mouth swallow. You know, of course, depending on what the patient's presenting with and what the modified or the fees looks like, we might need more or different exercises, but that's kind of the standard for tours. And they would do these four times a day, about five repetitions of each one, and that's leading up to their surgery. So we see them, we have a, a good grace period. We see them and they've got a couple weeks before their surgery so they can actually build some strength. And then they would stop these and wait after their surgery until they're cleared medically. And of course, we reevaluate, you know, what they really need as far as exercises go. Okay. They've been practicing them for a few weeks prior to that point. So they're very familiar. Yes. Yep. And they're already getting the benefits. If they need other things, we look at jaw range of motion and articulation and all these, these types of things. Of course, we look at the whole picture when we're evaluating 
pre-surgery. So anything that they need compensations or strategies for or or exercises for, we would give to them. Uh, we try to keep it as simple as we can, though, because they are, you know, often overwhelmed with this, just the diagnosis. I can imagine. Yes. Okay. So we talked a little bit about surgery. So what other types of cancer treatments might the patient undergo? With head and neck cancer in general, and also with this HPV mediated cancers, it's really common to have multiple modalities as far as treatment. So some patients will actually get the tours recover from that. And then, you know, by that six week mark, they're actually going in for chemo radiation or just radiation. So it's a tough road. It's not an easy road. Other patients will have primary or definitive chemo radiation, and that's the only treatment that they get, but that is a combined modality, both chemo and radiation. And then we have a third category of patients that will just get radiation. So it really varies from patient to patient, but often includes two or more modalities. With chemo radiation, we know very well that the patients are going to struggle. They're going to struggle with regard to their swallowing. They're going to struggle with regard to pain. And we, as much as we educate them and their families, it's hard to really set someone up for that. But we actually see them every other week or sometimes every week during their treatment and are a support system and an encourager through that. And the types of things that we educate about are dental care, because of course, radiation and chemo can affect your teeth and gums, xerostomia, dyskesia, oral mucositis, which is sores in the mouth, odynophagia, painful swallowing. That's a big one for these patients. We educate about fibrosis, radiation fibrosis, and lymphedema. And as you can, you know, most of y'all will know that some of these side effects are transient. You know, taste tends to get better and sometimes does return, if not fully, then at least for the most part after treatment is done many months later. But things like radiation fibrosis and lymphedema are, those are side effects that they need to watch for for life. So we're actually telling this before they even have the treatment. We talk about how important it is to eat and exercise. Can you clarify that with the radiation fibrosis? So that might not come until years after the radiation? And what exactly is radiation fibrosis? So the way I explain it to patients is that radiation fibrosis is hardening the muscles and tissues that have been in the direct field of radiation. So that hardening is something that we are actively trying to work against by eating and exercising the muscles And we need to continue to eat, as long as it's safe to do so, continue to eat and exercise those swallowing muscles before you even start the treatment. So we see them before, all the way through their treatment and after. We switch, though. We do a preventative exercise program before and during their cancer treatment, and then Once they're, and a lot of our patients do, return to eating well down the road, we would actually switch to a maintenance plan. And the maintenance plan is something that they would do every single day for life. And that combined with eating, the research shows that that can help to ward off radiation fibrosis. 
So what is so unfortunate is when I see patients who were radiated in the 80s and 90s and, you know, time before SLPs were necessarily involved or before we knew this, that prophylactic exercise is so important, those patients, they can eat and drink for decades. I saw a patient this week who had been eating and drinking for 20 years, and then all of a sudden that radiation fibrosis caught up with him and he had to get a peg tube and he cannot eat and drink safely by mouth. He's doing it anyway, you know, and and more power to him. He's decided to do that, but he could not believe that it was actually the radiation he had gotten 20 years ago. Yes. So now we're really fortunate. We know that SLPs getting involved early and often throughout the treatment and prophylactic swallowing exercises works. And it can help patients month, it can help them obviously during the treatment, but even months and years after. And those types of exercises, of course, again, it depends on the patient and the problems that they're presenting with, but pretty much the standard is the Shakir, Mendelssohn, jaw opening, a bulldog stretch where the patient would open their mouth widely and then lift their their jaw and protrude it to the ceiling and, and have a nice stretch of that anterior neck. Superglottic swallow, unless they have heart disease or risk for stroke or anything like that. Pitch glides, masako, and the effortful swallow. And so for preventative purposes, they would do these four times a day, ideally before they're chemo radiation or just radiation starts and then throughout. And we see them the whole step of the way and we're cheerleading them because they're not going to want to do it. They don't feel good. It hurts. They don't want to keep eating because it hurts and things taste terrible. But we're the ones there who know we're looking ahead and down the road when they're pain is gone and their taste returns, if they haven't been eating and exercising through treatment, they won't be able to when they're ready. And that is one of the most important things, I think, to take away from this, you know, this whole podcast in general, but also when we're meeting with our patients, you cannot wait for your taste to return and you cannot wait for the pain with swallowing to subside or it will be too late. You have to eat and exercise. And the research shows us that. Our clinical practice shows us that. And that is really key. And when patients do eat and exercise through their treatment and participate in this speech pathology sessions, they have better outcomes. And it's, it's just fantastic. And it's really great to be a part of this now when we know these things and we can be at the table. Well, it's great to see the role that you're playing and so many SLPs are playing on the teams with head and neck cancer. Now, um, you said a while a while back that you had this great team and you described the great team. Would you say for the most part, that's the way treatment goes in, with the team approach? Well, you know, I think that in places, in ENT settings and, and large university settings and places where the caseload of head and neck cancer patients is high, that is the standard of care. But it's certainly not everywhere. And, you know, even especially living in South Carolina, I think about our rural SLPs in rural areas 
who don't have that. They may get a lot of head and neck cancer patients because a lot of our head and neck cancer patients live in rural areas, but they don't have access to this great team. So for those SLPs, what we try to do is we give them, we're open books. I mean, we give them education, handouts, you know, as much education as possible. We will give them with patient permission, obviously, the patient's reports. And we even go so far as saying, this is what we would do if we were treating this patient and would recommend that you do, you know, the same. And so we try to be a resource for SLPs who don't have this structure. And I would recommend, you know, if you're an SLP out there and you don't have access to this and you, you know, you think, gosh, that's a great fantasy world that she's in. I get it. I've been there. And, you know, certainly you can advocate for yourself and your services, get in touch with the doctors who are treating these patients. So that'd be, you know, really important. Get to see them before they come to you and they can't swallow anymore. (laughs) That's really frustrating when you're seeing patients and your outcomes are, you know, not good because you're not seeing them early enough. So definitely advocate for yourself and your services and then find mentors, find other places where this is the setup. And we have done that in our years. We have we have reached out to other folks. I mean, even the big wigs, you know, as we would call them, who do all the research for this, we've reached out to them. We say, you know, what is your gold standard and what's your protocol for treating these patients and for evaluating these patients? Because we want to make sure we do it right. And so if you're wherever you are, you can do that. You don't have to be at a major institution to do that and to learn. And we are constantly also doing, we're participating in continuing education courses and just learning as much as possible. That's something that you can do too, even if you're not living in this this fantasy world of the team that we've put together. Well, thank you. Well, and similarly, what advice would you give to a new SLP who has had limited voice experience, maybe only a voice course in graduate school and has either seen, you know, a couple voice clients or maybe some didn't see any voice clients at all? What advice would you give to those new SLPs? So great question. I I think, you know, if you're in graduate school still, then I would advocate for yourself for the right placements. You know, you you go, you get your courses and that's usually pretty standard unless there's a dysphagia track or adult track or, or something like that. But you would definitely want to advocate to have a placement in, you know, let's say adult acute care, adult outpatient, an ENT setting where you're going to have exposure to these patients. Now, if you've already graduated and you say, okay, well, thanks, but it's too late for that. Then, you know, if you're looking for your CF, you would want to try to obviously get a CF in a setting that would expose you to these patients. So that could be, again, adult acute care, outpatient or ENT, predominantly those. And then, you know, if it's been a while and this is new to you or you want to hone in on your skills and you've graduated already, you did your CF, I think that really, you know, again, accessing continuing education for these topics. The ASHA SIG groups are great. You know, the the swallowing dysphagia SIG, the voice SIG, 
those are great resources. And so, you know, definitely accessing those. And then there are, you know, forums and, and listservs and, and different things like that, that one can be a part of. And you have to, you know, fish through the all of the information and make sure you're taking away what's evidence-based. But there are a lot of things out there now for us, you know, with technology, you're so fantastic. And then I think one of the most important things would be to find a mentor. So that could be someone who you've identified or in your research you find is specializing in this patient population and could be there for you when you have questions. That could be someone at a smaller facility who just has a high caseload of these patients or someone at a a big facility who's doing a lot of research in this. And, you know, it could be anybody who you feel is a quote unquote expert and who's practicing evidence-based medicine for these folks. So that would be a big recommendation of mine is get a mentor. And that's what I did. And I worked out well and still connect with that mentor on a very frequent basis. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. And you did include some resources. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So I included some of my citations of articles that I found that are really helpful when you're wanting to learn more about this subject. And then also a handout that, you know, you can look at where our major questions were asked in this podcast, and you can look at the articles that correspond with that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Before we go, though, um, do you, could you, being HIPAA compliant, of course, tell us about one of your favorite success stories? I know it's hard to find favorites, yeah. but what one comes to mind? There are several, and it's really been great to see the evolution of the involvement of speech pathologists with this population. Because when I first started, and I think it was partially, you know, where I where I started and where we were in our profession, but I would get these patients who were already, you know, unable to swallow. They had never had any SLP intervention. Maybe they were even 5, 10, 15 years out from their treatment. And that's, it's frustrating for everybody, you know? And so that really spurred me to know and fight for the seat at the table. So now I'm seeing patients before they're even, you know, going through their treatment and we can get started early and I see them often and they become lifelong, you know, family members, frankly, and I see them the rest of their life often. And I'm, I'm coordinating with those visits with the ENT. But one patient in particular I can think of was, was just one recently who's going through chemo radiation for tonsil cancer and a really good sense of humor and snarky guy. And I, I love it because I can, I can spit it just and, and take it too. And it's really fun. But he came to me, he was absolutely fine as far as swallowing function goes before treatment. And I said, you know, you are starting out in a great place. This is fantastic. Your modified looked great, you know, no issues. And during treatment, he struggled so much. And I saw him every other week. And then we actually put it to every week. And he went from full regular diet, anything I want, which is the classic quote that we get. What are you eating? Anything I want. Okay. So then during treatment, about it's usually about week three or four where 
you know, things hit the fan and the pain comes to, you know, really, really presenting itself, the change in taste and all of this. And it it really only gets worse from there because the treatment toxicity is building. And so at week three, it's typical for patients to start saying, it hurts so bad to swallow. I don't know why you're making me do this. I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm, I'm having to go to purees or, you know, whatever. And then week by week, they're going to liquid oral supplements. They're using their peg for a majority of their nutrition. They're spitting in a spit bag, which I throw those away and say, nope, we're not doing this. You need to swallow. This guy <laughs> came and he had his spit, literally garbage bag spit bag. And I, I just looked at him and I said, buddy, okay, what are you taking by mouth? Nothing. What are you swallowing? Nothing, not saliva, nothing. Are you doing your exercises? Heck no. And we had a little discussion there. His wife was there and I said, okay, you've been here for how long? And he said, two weeks. And I said, okay, that's two weeks too long. And if you stay at this level, not swallowing anything, you will not be able to swallow anything. When all this is done, you will not be able to swallow anything. And of course, I say it in a very, you know, comes from the heart. It's loving. It's stern, but with love. And I've developed a backbone in a way to approach these patients and and really speak to them. And so I said that and I said, you know what, do you think you could swallow if you tried? And he said, yeah, I could do it. So I said, okay, we're going to do that. And I have some water here and I have some applesauce here and here you go. And I made him, you know, and and you can't do this with everybody, of course, but for him, it was the tough love he needed. And so I said, okay, here you go. You're going to eat this and, and drink your water. And he did it. And I said, he didn't like it. You know, he was giving me grimaces and it hurt and it didn't taste good. And I said, but listen, you have the function still. So you are so fortunate that you can still do this. So you better capitalize on that while you can, because if you don't, you won't be able to when all this is done. And that really hit home with him. And he said, you know what? I'm going to have ice cream for dinner tonight. And I said, great, you are going to have ice cream for dinner and it's going to be fantastic. And he did. And he also wasn't talking much because he had all this saliva that would build up in his mouth. And it's interesting. A lot of patients will either have no saliva and it'll be like a desert or they'll have just way too much and it's really thick. And and so I said, you know, talk to me, talk to me. No, you're not going to not going to spit. You're going to swallow it and you're going to talk to me. Don't you know, don't use your hand gestures and so forth. I said, what do you have coming up next week? And his wife said, well, he's a teacher, but he's not teaching because he can't talk or he won't talk. She said. And I said, well, you can talk. Go teach this week. And he just lit up and he's and I said, I'm a teacher. I, I teach at a university here in South Carolina. And I said, I'm a teacher. I love it. And I bet you do too. And he said, I do. And so he went and actually taught his class and it just, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, Turned him around and it's really what he needed. So it was a tough love, really encouraging, but also firm and saying, listen, I know I'm looking out for you when all this is done. And I know you're in the throes of it and it's awful And it's really hard to wrap your brain around how what you do now can affect you later. 
you know, that's hard for us as humans in general, but it's really tough. But I know this, I know this research tells us, my clinical practice tells us, and I'm looking out for you when all this is over. So do you want to be eating when all this is over? Then eat now. You know, you again, you have to do this with patients in a certain way and also be sure that they're safe, you know, to to eat and drink. But if they are, then, you know, it, it works very often to just lay it on the line. That was a really recent patient and I loved it was an immediate turnaround and a light went off and he said, I'm having ice cream and I'm going to teach and I'm going to surprise my students by you know, actually being the one instead of my assistant to teach this lecture. And so it was really, really awesome to be, be part of that. Oh, thank you for sharing that story. And thank you so much for being here. This is You're such welcome. an important topic. So important to share the information about HPV and about the vaccine. And of course, about our role in helping those patients who do have HPV mediated oral pharyngeal cancer. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's so great to hear your role in helping patients return to active lives. That's very rewarding as an SLP and of course, rewarding for the patients. So yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep up the good work. All right. Will do. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.